This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. All right. Well, I'm in the studio today in person, not over Zoom. It's amazing. With two of my colleagues, two professors at Fox. We have Isaac Choi, professor of philosophy and director of our honors program. And we have Joel Mayward, who's a professor in the School of Theology, and he's also an expert in film. And we're here today to talk about I'm going to clear my throat for some dramatic pause. (laughs) Actually, I just needed to clear my throat, Um, but it can be a drum roll. We're here to talk about postmodernism, right? So I wanted to talk about this because it's a term that's thrown around all the time, you know, especially in, I don't know, like Christian apologetics or pop culture. Sometimes it's presented as this like, you know, this like bugbear of Christianity, like, oh, postmodernism is wrong. Everything was wrong with our culture because of postmodernism. So, and I think there's, of course, going to be some truth in that. But I'm also wondering, okay, but is there truth in postmodernism as well, right? Because I think one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is going and encountering other thoughts, um, other philosophical ways of thinking, and then taking what's true, right? Um, if all truth is really God's truth, then we can find kind of the seed of truth in other things. And so I just wanted to bring you all in. You seem like thoughtful people who have like thoughts to think and say about postmodernism. <laughs> um, and so I guess a good place to start is just how would, what is postmodernism? How would you define it? Uh, maybe Isaac, you can start. Well, this this is a huge thing. Actually, I don't know if um, Joel would be on the same page with me because we're coming at it from very different angles. Um, I'm coming at it as a philosopher, whereas Joel is um, coming at it from much broader kind of cultural, literary, artistic uh, film context. So, so I think postmodernism means different things to different people in some ways. I think there is a kind of a core to the idea. Um, and I think that... Uh, it's kind of like this idea of, uh, in some ways, a repudiation of modernism, right? So, I mean, postmodernism <laughs> is post-something, right? Modernism, right. right? And so kind of one way to define postmodernism is to look at what modernism is. And at least within philosophy, modernism is was this movement from the 1600s up to probably the 20th century, which really put a strong emphasis on the role of reason, Hmm. that we as humans could use reason alone to get to truth. And it was kind of in response to uh, the Middle Ages um, against um, Aristotle, Aristotle's philosophy, but also his science, as well as um, the medieval Catholicism that uh, like the Reformation was kind Hmm. of um, reacting against. But Modernism was kind of reacting against even the Reformation saying, okay, let's just throw out the Bible as well and say, mm-hmm. let's just start from ground zero with reason alone and, and the, the results of science. And we can achieve all, all forms of objective knowledge, all forms of um, development of society, progress in every direction using reason alone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if that's what modernism is, postmodernism is kind of a reaction against that. Right. So I often see like uh, the history of ideas as like these pendulum swings that go from one extreme and then reaction against that extreme to go to the opposite extreme. And so if modernism is characterized in this deep, deep kind of faith and commitment to reason being kind of omni capable. Right. 
um, then postmodernism mm-hmm. is kind of like a, a, a critique of that, saying mm-hmm. reason is actually quite limited. And in fact, um, at least from the philosophical um, kind of versions of postmodernism, it's, to, it's a basically a kind of skepticism that says that there actually is no um, objective truth that we can know, right? It's kind of like the opposite kind of stance with regard to reason as modernism is. Um, so at least that's that's at the core of what postmodernism is with regard to um, what it's reacting against in terms of the forms of modernism that we saw just a few centuries ago. Joel, I wonder if you could um, expand on what Isaac was talking about, maybe in how postmodernism looks like more broadly in culture and the arts and theology. Um, and like, what is it? What is this thing that we're calling postmodernism? What's the the core yeah. of it? Yeah. So I'm coming at this from yeah, a theological, philosophical, and more of an aesthetic or the arts level and specifically in film, but just literature, visual art. And there's a, a hesitancy or a skepticism towards meta narrative. So this larger story, capital S story, to try to make sense of the world. Uh, that postmodernism is looking at that and with a, a sense of caution, mm-hmm. uh, a sense of uh, the idea that there is some sort of objective truth, mm-hmm. capital T, that maybe that's some sort of power play or power game, or maybe that how do you really know that you actually, you know, have the corner market on truth? Uh, and so it's a resistance of that and then almost a, a parody or critique of that as well. So there's hmm. a sense of humor, I think, behind it, uh, a sense of willingness to push at boundaries, uh, to, to deconstruct things uh, and pull them apart and try and understand what's going on underneath and also kind of expose um, what uh, folks might have thought was so secure uh, and so rigid and they could build a foundation upon to show that the foundations are really a bit more shaky than that. Let's dig into that idea of meta narratives for a second. So I think you mentioned suspicion toward meta narratives, right? Um, that tends to be like the defining kind of moment where is it Jean-Francois Lyotard, I mm-hmm. think is the first one to mm-hmm. say that that postmodernism is defined by an incredulity, I think is the word he uses toward meta narratives. So you said like big S story, but what what are meta narratives? What could be some examples of meta narratives um, that postmodernism is incredulous about? Yeah, I think so. Isaac mentioned reason, right? So this mm-hmm. idea of scientific understanding, uh, empirical data that we can look at. This uh, eventually logical positivism, positivism comes out of this, right? That we can know this objective truth through our reasoning, through deduction. Uh, and that this can make sense of all things. And th- so a meta narrative, an overarching narrative that can make sense of the world. And postmodernism would question that and critique that and wonder, mm, are, all, are there alternative stories that are at play? Mm-hmm. Are there things that are going on behind the scenes that we might not be aware of? Are there limits to our knowledge? Are there limits to our understanding of the world? Um, and so it it becomes this very skeptical uh, suspicious. Uh, Paul Ricoeur, a philosopher, talks about hermeneutics of suspicion mm-hmm. uh, and draws on Nietzsche and Freud and Marx as these three figures who are critiquing uh, these overarching narratives of, well, this is the way that God always works, or this is the way that science will always get us a, uh, at a better understanding of the world around us, uh, or even politics. Like there's a political understanding that we can somehow better the world. We can figure this stuff out. It's a very positive oriented um, way of thinking in modernism that postmodernism is just kind of 
we're going to turn that on its head and ask questions of who's really in control here and why is this happening the way it's happening and should it be happening this way um, and whose voices are being left out. Uh, how do we pay attention to those voices too? So it almost sounds like the way you all are describing postmodernism that there's certainly this element of critique, of questioning, of subverting or blurring boundaries. Um, is there anything like positive? Does does postmodernism assert, I don't mean positive like optimistic, I'm happy, but positive like making a positive assertion rather than just a negation, Right. Is there any is there any like positive content to postmodernism, or is it really just this kind of gadfly um, against meta narratives, like kind of poking them and seeing where the gaps are and where the holes are? I don't know. Do either of you have thoughts on that? Uh, I think certain postmodern thinkers uh, would take a form of a kind of a dogmatic skepticism of basically saying we can't be sure of anything in the world, which in some way is a positive assertion, right? And the mm -hmm. critique is then made, then well, right. that that is a Meta narrative. Yeah, that is a meta narrative or a positive assertion that we can't actually understand the world in this way. Um, and so I think a more, and honestly, a more accurate understanding of, of postmodernity um, and postmodern thinking has to do with just a, a cautious, uh, a cautiousness about one's own perceptions of the world. And so, an, and an awareness of one's biases and then able to speak and voice what those are. Um, so it does value subjectivity. So there's a positive, I would even say a positive and like a positive, like a happy thing or something <laughs> towards, towards subjective experience, okay. uh, and valuing those personal and, uh, narratives and cultural contexts and those things that it's not trying to universalize everything. It's saying, well, let's look at these individual experiences and people and cultures and contexts and try and understand it better. Yeah, I mean, something that I want to pick up on what you said earlier in terms of um, this kind of at least two different varieties of postmodernism, one, the kind of more radical kind, which is like everything, we don't know anything, there's no truth, there's no objectivity. Um, and then this kind of more uh, moderate version of postmodernism, which is just questioning, you know, biases and questioning the limits of our knowledge and things like that. So this is where I think where um, there's this debate within philosophy as to whether postmodernism is a new thing or whether that's just modernism raised to the nth degree, right? Like modernism to its logical conclusion, right? And so that kind of moderate version of postmodernism, I think you can really, really read that as just modernism, just stronger, right? Because already in like David Hume in the 1700s and Immanuel Kant in the same century, um, in this, the, the height of the modern period, there was deep skepticism about what we can know, you know, um, Kant famously kind of puts this wall up between our phenomenal experience, what we experience versus the things in themselves, right? So he already is kind of drawing this distinction between kind of our subjective understanding of the world and the world itself. So in that sense, that kind of more moderate version of postmodernism is in a sense just modernism in a new guise. Whereas I think what's genuinely new about postmodernism, at least in terms of um, the 20th century incarnation of it is this claim that that stronger claim that there is no objective truth. There is, there is no truth at all. Right. And I think that that's the thing that the modernists would be like, Oh, hold on there. We don't want to go that far. Right. Um, so I think that that's the thing that really raises people's um, hackles and say, wait a minute, we, we don't want to say that there's no truth. Right. Um, because that's something that, uh, that, that is a radical revision of how we see the world. Right. As opposed to, okay, you know, competing meta narratives and, you know, a lot of these meta narratives are kind of infected with bias and, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, 
So I don't, I don't know what you think about. Yeah, I do think there's um, it's a spectrum or gradations, and even the idea of postmodernism being after modernism. I don't know, like it is kind of it's not like this sharp break. There are folks who you know have different dates for when mm -hmm. sure. the potential timeline ends and the other ones begin, but there's other even language about i've heard liquid modernity heard mm -hmm. post postmodernism um i'm reading a book right now called metamodernism yeah it's this kind of reimagining metamodernism mm -hmm. uh, it's by a, i'm gonna get his name wrong jason storm i know his last name is storm uh, <laughs> uh and he writes he's written a book called the myth of disenchantment uh that kind of questions the idea of we live in a disenchanted world and how mm -hmm. kind of secularism and the rise of that he, He's, he looks at evidence that no people still believed in magic and they still believed in spirits and things like that. That that's always been part of this, um, just the human cultural experience uh, and continues to be so. Even for people who would say they're skeptical about a belief in God, mm. that the, the yeah the rise of the nuns and not believing in God and the rise of astrology mm -hmm. seem to correspond in a really interesting way. Mm. Uh, so I can believe in spiritual and ideas or understanding all that to say metamodernism is this question about theory and how does modernity and postmodernity and some of the larger tenets of those things maybe maybe there's a better conversation that can be had between those two uh kind of an amalgamation or a partnership or a dialogue uh, of, of the radical skepticism of postmodernism and then that kind of foundational no objective universals meta narratives that there's something in between there that we can look at both of those with a sense of humility and have dialogue between the two and in that make some interpretations about the world that can get us closer to truth so it's kind of like like couples therapy for <laughs> postmodernism and modernism like okay let's get you guys in a room like let's talk to each other i think we can come to some sort of understanding totally and it's <laughs> it is a bit of like a critique of both mm -hmm. and then an affirmation of no there's there is good stuff uh, if all truth is God's truth, then we can look at both of these of modernism, all yeah, the larger swath of modernism, postmodernism, and be able to find and discern there are things that can lead us to God. Uh, there are tools that can help us understand who God is better in both of those realms. So. I'm interested in talking more about what postmodernism, I don't know, looks like more on the kind of popular level. So not even just in the academy or in these kind of intense theoretical discussions, but I guess, where do you see postmodernism showing up in your classroom, like in your students or in your churches or in our popular culture? Like, where do you see that kind of grassroots or kind of trickle down postmodernism showing up? Yeah, I mean, it, with regard to um, my teaching, I've um, here at Fox, uh, I, I've taught these ethics classes, right? And in mm -hmm. these classes, I'm teaching different kind of ethical theories and, and two really prominent ones, which are really at odds with each other would be, you know, um, deontology, which is uh, a view um, pretty much championed by one of the philosophers I mentioned earlier, Immanuel Kant. And then there's utilitarianism, which is championed by um, John Stuart Mill, right? And so these two um, radically opposed kind of ethical theories are pretty much the most popular ethical theories in uh, secular academia and secular philosophy. But it's interesting when I teach these um, to the students and say, you know, here's pros and cons, arguments for and against. Uh, some of my students, I, I just remember this one student who wrote this paper who said, I don't want to say either of these is wrong. Hmm. I want to say both of them are right. 
right? And mm. I feel like it's not that the student ever really thought about, you know, the philosophy of modernism and postmodernism, things like that. But there's this impulse that students, freshmen, sophomores, um, who come into Fox, even if they were raised in a Christian context, they've somehow absorbed from the culture this idea that they're, in terms of truth, we should not be saying anything is wrong. Hmm. We should be accepting everyone's uh, beliefs that all these things are true. And so there's this kind of real hesitation to actually critique a view. And so when I say, oh, hmm. why don't you write a paper, um, defend one view, whether it be Mill or Kant, and um, and you know give reasons for why, the student at least had a really hard time even doing the assignment hmm. because he wanted to basically say, no, both of them are true. He wants to give them both a big hug and not really, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I think that that is kind of at the more popular level, this deep hesitation to say to anyone or to any philosophy or worldview or way of life that this is somehow false. Yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that in teaching world religions right now and having students who um, are hesitant to... Um, I guess make any claims that one religion might be better or worse or right or wrong in the sense of they're just all kind of there, like all God is one. Mm -hmm. And it's just different ways of climbing up the same mountain. Mm -hmm. So it's a different pathway to get to the top, but it's all really part of it, um, which on a modern level is still kind of a meta narrative. There's a mountain yeah. uh, right. that we're all agreeing yeah. that there's some sort of God. Um, but on another level, in kind of a postmodern way, it slips into that side of, well, just kind of we flattened everything out into being just, well, you can choose what you want. I can choose what I want. Um, the Hindus and the, have chosen what they want. The Buddhists have chosen what they want. Uh, and so there's a, a sense of just a, almost a dogmatic toleration mm -hmm. that disallows critique, disallows ultimately conversation to come about, mm -hmm. about what, what are things that we could say are true or not true? And how could we even discern whether those things are, we can still learn from other religions, even from a Christian faith. Uh, but we can't, if we're not even willing to have a dialogue or conversation about what what's actually going on there within that religion and understand it on its own terms. So Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because uh, there's this book, and I forget the name of the professor who wrote it. He, he was a um, professor of religious studies at Boston University. And the title of the book was God is not one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you say, yeah, you Stephen know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So right, I right. use that in my class and, and talk about it. Like he he was driven to write this book because so many of his students just assumed that all the world religions were the same, right? Yeah. That they're describing the same spiritual reality and it's all kind of one, all these paths up the same mountain. I mean, I guess that's exactly where you're coming from. But like he wrote this to basically show that no, actually that claim is simply false. These religions are claiming very different things that cannot be kind of easily harmonize with each other, right? And I think that that's, so it's it's this weird kind of, uh, on the part of the students, it's this weird impulse to say, we don't want to choose. We want to just claim that all these things are true. But just by basic logic alone, if they're making claims that are incompatible with each other, they can't all be true, right? But I think that this is where the radicality of certain branches of postmodernism comes into play in that they redefine what truth is, right? Um, the traditional definition of truth is that it's correspondence with reality, that your belief corresponds with how things really are, right? Whereas at least in these strains of postmodernism, there's this idea that um, truth just simply is what you believe, right? 
and there's no kind of connection with reality or any kind of correspondence with reality. And what, quote, you are in that what you believe can be an individual or a culture or subculture. And so if you redefine truth that way, then, um, then they can say, yes, for the Hindu, uh, Hinduism is true because that's what the culture within the subcontinent believes uh, as a whole, for the most part, whereas uh, Christianity is true because in certain parts of uh, North America, um, there's this cultural consensus on uh, belief in Christianity, but that there's no kind of correspondence to any kind of um, objective reality outside of the community or outside of uh, one's belief. So I think that that's, that's kind of one of the strategies for trying to get to this end result, to say, look, we don't have to choose between these different world religions. We don't have to choose between these, these different rival and incompatible moral philosophies. We can embrace them all and say all of them are true if we're willing to redefine what truth is. Hmm. So on, I, I, I have observed the same, similar things in what you're saying, kind of a, um, like a diffuse relativism, like moral relativism. But at the same time, I also think this this generation or our culture also in certain pockets is very puritanical mm -hmm. and makes very mm -hmm. kind of strong dogmatic claims, especially kind of in the political realm, right? So it seems strange that in like political polarization is increasing so much and that becomes like, you know, I am right and you are wrong. And in fact, like you're actually bad because yeah. we disagree. Yeah. So you should how, be silenced because yeah. we disagree. So how is that some weird kind of feature of postmodernism? Is that or is that a sign that maybe we are coming out of postmodernism into something else? Like, how would you kind of square, I guess, that? I'm not sure quite how even how to label it, but it doesn't seem it seems to make very strong political claims anyway, perhaps ethical claims. Yeah. Um, so is that an emergence from postmodernity, or is it actually a product of postmodernity? What do you think? I have two thoughts. I, I could I, <laughs> maybe this is a very postmodern thing to do, but I, I'm swinging toward the side of it. Actually, seems more modern, mm. especially in the political discourse, to be able to say, "Well, my meta narrative is better than your meta narrative." Mm. That my particular worldview or stance or philosophical background or political allegiance ultimately makes sense of the world better than yours does. And so it does kind of, um, it's over and above the other person. But I can also see how the postmodern side of things or the influence of that is just the fracturing of discourse in yes. general. And okay. so if there's a, a complete lack of dialogue or fracturing because it's become so, mm -hmm. um, not just it's the opposite of tolerance. It becomes this sense of, well, everyone's just kind of going to do their own thing yeah. uh, and make their own decisions. And it's just your opinion, man. And that's yeah. it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, like all you can really do is you can't really make an argument, but you can just like put a sign in your yard that takes a stand. Yeah. You know? And we can't like stack hands on some sort of epistemological foundation of what truth even is anymore. Okay. And our, even our own language can't, we've lost all capacity to communicate because if you don't know what certain words mean that I'm saying and I don't know what certain words that you mean that we all thought were it's all English um, but when you say conservative or progressive and we have different meanings of what mm -hmm. that even means and there's a lack of being able to even talk about it because uh, there's so it's this strange mix of some modernist tendencies maybe the worst kinds yeah and the worst kinds of postmodern tendencies that seem to build that kind of entrenchment that's at least that's my take on it yeah that's my interpretation 
Yeah, well, I think it's what's, what's interesting, truth, yeah. uh, just to kind of build on what you said earlier about the metamodernism book and yeah. how, how the claim was that there's always been, there hasn't been a full disenchantment, right? I think the, the, the truth, and I think that's true in the sense that, like, there's always been different kind of subcultures within, within society, right? So I think even now, there is a virulently modernist subculture, hmm. and there's a virulently postmodern subculture, and then there's all these other people who are kind of in between who've never really thought it through, and just kind of pick and choose from these two different subcultures. So like I'm thinking about like people like Stephen Hawking, like people who mm -hmm. are really into STEM, like the big science supporters, uh, the folks like Bill Nye, the science guy. Mm -hmm. These folks are modernists. They mm -hmm. have not changed yes, at all right, right. from the, yeah. the time of like the logical positivists and even earlier. Um, they they're, they have total confidence in science that, you know, mm -hmm. once we get rid of religion, once we get rid of all these other things, like we will have a utopia. Like that is the modernist project, at least, you know, a big part of it. And then, you know, of course, you have the postmodernists, but they're coexisting within one world. And so, like, if you're in these modernist circles, you accept these things. And if you're in postmodern circles, you accept these things. And the poor students who are being raised in a culture in which different folks have different things, they're kind of saying, okay, I'm going to buy into the postmodernism at the level of ethics and religion and things like that. But I'm going to buy into the modernism when it comes to my phone and how it works. I'm mm -hmm. going to buy into it with regard to science. And um, if I get sick or, you know, if I have cancer, God forbid, you know, I'm going to go see the doctor. I'm not going to, I'm not going to start saying, well, you know, the doctor's recommendation is equally as good, uh, uh, or sorry, the, 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 um, which doctor in um, you know uh, sub-Saharan Africa that their recommendations for cancer are just as good as the well? Uh, that's interesting, as I think that has happened uh -huh, actually in some yeah. level, like in a technological sense. Like I I believe the YouTube video or the podcast more than the mm -hmm. authority figure of the doctors or the scientists has, especially over mm -hmm. this past couple of years of COVID. Well, yes, I right? think that that's where it's like yeah. that's where the politicization comes into play, right? But even like, I think they make like I would. And I've had conversations with people about this, like they would trust the YouTube video as a source of authority for whatever reason that it speaks to them and their subjective experience more than they would trust myself with a PhD, um, my sister-in-law, who's a, a pharmacist, a doctor, yeah. talking about certain things in mm -hmm. medicine and just the way the world works. We would rather look at, again, I found this cool YouTube video or listen to this podcast and that becomes a source of authority, which is where I think, I mean, ironically, we're talking on a podcast about this, um, that <laughs> I mean, these, these forms, even mediated forms start to shape even modern and postmodern thinking and how that works. I don't think it's an accident, um, that the rise of postmodernism and even the rise of cinema and audiovisual forms, they seem to kind of correspond and correlate over the last 20th, mm -hmm. the 20th century into the no, 21st no, I, century. I wasn't saying that that example was across the board. That's how every non kind of yeah. um, hardcore member of the modernist or postmodernist camp sees it. I'm just saying as an example, that would be one way they can kind of mix and match in these different realms. It could be the reverse as well. They might be mm. um, like hardcore atheist and hardcore, you know what I mean? Uh, believer in a certain political party, but really be into like, um, you know, crystal healing for their, yeah. for their right. illness. So, I mean, I, so there's different ways that they can mix and match given that there's these kind of like, you know, the hardcore supporters of these kind of modernist and postmodernist projects or views, and then um, you kind of mix and match. So I think that that's where, but I think that mixing and matching itself, as you, as you said, is also a postmodern thing yeah. in the sense that there's, they don't feel the need for self-consistency. Yeah, It's like, I don't need to, use the same, quote, methods to get to truth in this area of my life than the other. At least that's the way they see it, right? Yeah. And so. And I think even that is a, 
strangely modern thing that postmoderns might not even realize that emphasis on individual choice and personal it even goes back to a bit of Descartes like I think therefore like I get to define myself on some level Mm -hmm. um the empire doesn't define me or my political you know because I live in this particular thing like some sort of personal autonomy is there and so it it does make sense that we if we're on that trajectory of personal autonomy that I get to design my own self Mm -hmm. and who I am that ultimately there's this if there isn't some sort of collective sense of who we are or an objective divine transcendent truth that can speak into that self, um, then it just leads to divide uh, and pockets and entrenchments and that kind of thing. Hmm. I wonder, I wonder if there's a relationship between, or maybe what is the relationship between postmodernism and consumerism? Cause I, I've been thinking as we're talking that it almost seems like in the postmodern era where there is a suspicion toward meta narratives and meta narratives are, you know, they explain, like they give an account of reality. They give an account of our identity, our place in reality. They give an account of meaning and goodness. Right. So it's, it's kind of like the framework that holds all those things together. And so if you don't have that, it seems like there'd be this huge vacuum. Like how, on what basis do you even make ethical claims or judgments or on what basis do you even decide which political party has more merit or all of these things, right? So I'm wondering, like, has consumerism come in and filled that vacuum in a way? Um, or has anything filled that vacuum? Or, or or is what you're describing even just the fact that there is a vacuum? So that's why it's so inconsistent, you know? So people will kind of, you know, make, make different choices. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll heal myself with crystals here, but then, you know, I'm like super dogmatic about, you know, mask wearing over here or whatever, you know, just yeah. kind of holding together these contradictories. Like I'm just trying to, trying to put the pieces together, but that's maybe that, maybe I'm like a, a non-postmodernist because that's always my impulse. Like, what are the connections here? Like postmodernists just want to like rip it all apart. And I'm like, I want to kind of draw it together and get a sense of, of meaning here. But yeah, I wonder if you guys have thoughts on on how maybe postmodernism has either fueled consumerism or vice versa or what the relationship is between those things. I think that consumerism or just the the availability of choice within the marketplace is something that allows people to construct their own image of themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's like, if there is no stable underlying kind of like what defines me as me kind of that kind of objective truth to that, like, I'm going to define who I am with my subjective preferences, with the clothes I choose to wear, with the foods I choose to drink, the kind Mm -hmm. of car I drive. And so having this kind of marketplace with a large variety of different goods allows for at least the illusion of self-creation, right? That you're creating Mm -hmm. yourself. But I think that works even more hand in hand with the, with social media, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you, if you think about social media, it's like, you're projecting an image of yourself, mm-hmm. uh, especially on platforms like Instagram and TikTok, where it's mm-hmm. like you're presenting a certain slice of your life, whether it be in uh, video or photo form, with the clothes you're wearing, with you know if you're on a if you're on a trip somewhere, mm-hmm. like this is kind of like you're creating this external shell for your friends and peers and even your enemies to look at, so that they have this impression of the kind of self that you've constructed. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that that's that marriage of consumerism with social media is kind of deeply kind of in that kind of postmodern orbit in the sense that the, the, the self-creation and yet that, that creation of the self is in many ways illusory, right? I mean, there's so many memes in which it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're presenting yourself in a way, but really if you look behind the scenes, it would be 
<laughs> a mess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that that's definitely along postmodern lines. Hmm. I think related and maybe in a more, I guess, positive way of that is it it bespeaks of the human tendency and need to at least fill that void mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trying. We do have a sense of a self and we want to make meaning of our world and yep. we're meaning making animals in the mm-hmm. world, right? And there's something there um, that even if consumerism and social media tendencies can bring out the worst of that. Mm. It's still, there's something about us as yes. human beings that is trying to narrate our own stories. Right. And if we've lost a divine author to that narrative or any other kind of larger construct, and we're left scrambling to try and put the pieces together for ourselves, we still do that as humans. We're still putting the pieces together. Mm-hmm. And there is something I think significant about that, uh, about what it means to be human is to try to make sense of our world and not just to sit back and just kind of exist. Uh, or we, we're not just bodies that just kind of molecules that come together, but there's this soulish or spiritual aspect of us and our minds and our capacity um, that even in these consumeristic and social media tendencies that, yeah, probably are bad habits and bring out the worst in us, um, still st- stir up something about what it means to be human, mm-hmm. even if we've placed our allegiances in the wrong place. Right. Right. I mean, there's still this this desire and search for meaning, which I think yeah. is just foundational to our our very being. Like that's what human beings like we have this desire for meaning. And that's almost as important as bread, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder how much postmodernism can meet that hunger, right? Um, I wonder if you if if we can kind of shift our attention to the church, I guess, what, what is the church? Let's just say in America, let's just limit it to that. Although I'm totally open to go anywhere, but what does the church in America look like? And where do you see kind of the influence of postmodernism in the church, whether for good or ill? I know I grew up, so I grew up in a conservative evangelical Baptist church mm-hmm. um, where postmodernism was talked about in my youth group as this inherently negative evil thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that we got to be diligent to not fall into the trap of post-modernity um, because it's questioning God and questioning truth and all those other things. Um, and then when I got into seminary and then ultimately did a PhD in you know the intersection of theology and philosophy and the arts and trying to explore some of these postmodern philosophers, I actually found that to be more beneficial on some <laughs> level than less. Um, and not because of the dogmatic skepticism that I found, and some of those things are really unhelpful or unhealthy, um, but that there was an epistemological humility that was there, um, that the the question of maybe and perhaps, and even a risk of faith of wagering myself um, upon a God that is there, who's revealed God's self, that would require God to reveal himself in Christ, um, not just something that I came up with in my own reasoning and my own mm-hmm. cognitive abilities or something like that. So all that to say, in terms of being a pastor within churches, watching students, uh, so I was a youth and young adults pastor for over a decade, and um, watching students try and figure out the nature and meaning of truth, it helped me as I explored postmodern thinking uh, to ask those questions and help them form better questions than the ones they might have been asking, or even to ask questions that they weren't aware of because they were so set in just, well, this is this is my faith and the Bible says it and I believe it and that does it. 
um, and then would abandon their faith when they found that there were other possible options out there. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, again, like I think there's some benefits in, in the questioning aspect and saying it's okay to ask these questions, to raise these doubts, to raise these concerns. But let's do that in community and this kind of benevolent uh, argument or conflict of interpretations about who God is, uh, which is still anchoring itself in Christ. Uh, so there is some sort of objective transcendent truth outside of it, but we're still these little humans trying to scramble and figure out how to make sense of this God that's revealed himself in Christ. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, from my perspective, I think as a, a Christian philosopher, it's, it's, I sometimes despair over, uh, over the, the, the problems that we face, uh, not just with postmodernism, but also with um, modernism. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, like, I think the danger is that, we, it, it's just too easy to go to one ditch or the other, mm-hmm. right? In, in, in the sense of like, either we go to the modernist ditch and become like the hardcore new atheist type. It's like, you know, all, the, all this religion stuff is bunk, you know, it's BS, like, let's just throw it out. Or it, the corresponding Christian version of the modernist view and say, you know, we know this absolutely true, this kind of dogmatism that's like, mm-hmm. doesn't even, you know, think of questioning their faith and addressing like, big challenges from the culture, I think that's kind of sticking your head in the sand, right? But on, on the other side, you have this ditch in which you end up with that kind of um, cheap relativism mm-hmm. in which you say, you know, all religions are the same. Um, it doesn't really matter what you believe, you know, and that's just false, it's right? It's kind of it, a whateverism. Is yeah, whateverism yeah. in which it's like, it doesn't matter. So let's just live life and have fun. And that's it, right? And I think that both of these kind of extremes are just pernicious. And, and so like, it's striking that balance in between in which we question, we have we have a, a degree of skepticism without going whole hog into the mm-hmm. radical postmodernism world. Um, I think in, in a sense, it's helpful to kind of shake us out of the, the dogmatisms of both um, kind of the, the new atheist type view as well as the fundamentalist dogmatist kind of view. Um, but I think it takes a lot of effort actually to be able to have your questions and have your doubts and 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 search for the truth, but not fall into the kind of um, easy relativism, right? The easy skepticism that says, well, who knows? So I'm just gonna throw up my hands and just not even deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of actually working through questions, like um, working through issues and seeing whether or not there's good evidence or good reasons or arguments uh, for and against a particular view or a particular, on a particular issue. So I think that this is where, um, I think the church, or Christians in general in the West have fallen in one extreme or the other. And I think that both extremes are bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think do think that um, postmodernism can be helpful in its more moderate form in terms of um, kind of waking us up out of the kind of dogmatism in which we don't even question our own assumptions. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's not a good place for anyone to be, whether they be Christian, Marxist, atheist, you know, um, Hindu, whatever it might be. Um, so I do think that there is this kind of, uh, and I think it also works at the political level, that it, it makes us question whether or not our political commitments should be as strong as sometimes we make them, right? Um, so I think that it's, it's very helpful in those regards, but I do think that um, in practice, in the culture, it tends to gravitate towards the, towards the black hole of that kind of easy relativism, which just is, is just, it's livable. But I think it's just, in, in a sense, intellectual suicide. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen, too, uh, a phenomenon in the church recently that 
deconstruction, that word that gets used in Derrida. Mm -hmm. It comes from Derrida, right? But then it's now become this kind of popular thing to deconstruct one's faith. Um, and what does that mean? Like, how would you? Well, yeah. that's the thing. I actually think there's a wide variety of definitions that are being used. And it's mm -hmm. not necessarily in Derrida's original uh, understanding of what it meant. Uh, but the deconstruction I've seen as a pastor uh, typically has to do with just raising those questions, wondering, is the foundation that I was raised with in my Christian faith the correct one or the right one? Am I believing in the right meta narrative? Which I think is a healthy thing to question on some level, right? But where it becomes shifting towards deconstruction in the sense of let's just tear it all down because yeah. it was inherently bad in the first place and not attempt to rebuild or reconstruct. Um, or it sometimes becomes equated, and I think wrongfully so, as deconversion. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's okay to deconstruct, and there are many people who deconstruct and come out on the other side more mm -hmm. faithful Christians. Yeah. Um, but when it gets equated in the language particularly in social media and in people who've interpreted it as just deconversion, right. that the questioning mm -hmm. of one's faith automatically means one is leaving the faith mm -hmm. for something else and usually in some sort of negative way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case, but that's a term that really does rise from postmodern philosophers mm -hmm. and Derrida in particular, yeah. that's taken on its own <laughs> definition and meaning which again is a very postmodern thing to do yeah. <laughs> to say that the text itself this word this language yeah. of deconstruction is now being used in in very new ways that Derrida probably never was imagining on especially as it gets t thrown about on Twitter or on mm -hmm. Instagram or things like that yeah well being I mean we we have dangerous jobs I don't know if you guys ever feel that way but I often do particularly because of what we're discussing right I mean when when young people go to college, that's a very intense time of self-discovery, of examination, of trying on different, encountering new ideas, trying on different identities. And there's a, a part of that that is good and necessary, right? So in, in order for students, I think, to grow their faith and, and deepen their faith and it become more rooted and, and developed, there has, there has, there's kind of a risk there, right? Because asking questions, maybe moving beyond superficial answers, um, wrestling with different difficult parts of scripture, like all of that is really important. But at the same time, there's also this, you know, I don't know, it makes me nervous sometimes. And I catch myself sometimes either being too overprotective, like wanting to kind of, you know, hold them back from some of those deeper questions or to give them too, yeah, too easy answer. an answer. Yeah. yeah. To answer it too quickly. Um, but at the same time, I think earlier in my career, I made the mistake of basically just seeing that process of disorientation as like, that is spiritual formation, you know, which now I'm kind of like, Oh geez, I really don't, I really think that there has to also be this process of reorientation in the middle of that. So how do you approach that? I mean, you have pastoral experience, but you're also professors. So how how do you do that? How do you help students question well and wrestle well? I think for me, I I try to just be vulnerable and honest with my own questioning and doubts and wrestling, and almost not in a performative sense, but in a vulnerable. This is what I'm. These are the questions that I've raised for myself, and here's how I came to some of the answers that I've figured out for myself. You are going to have different questions, but here's how I can model how to how to get to the far side of that. And then also to to affirm it is okay to ask those questions. Uh, I I love 
being a part of the honors program and being able to talk about these great texts and then sometimes get the answer wrong about what this text means. <laughs> and as a professor going like, oh, I just want to tell you what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they have to wrestle with it in, mm -hmm. in community uh, and think critically about what's going on there within that text, especially when it's a biblical text. I just want to give them the answer. Yeah. Um, but there is something I think beneficial and it's even an act of faith, I think, to to trust that God is at work in those students' lives uh, beyond my time with them. Mm -hmm. um, and that God is gonna continue to be at work in their lives and in their story uh, beyond college, beyond uh, the class that I'm teaching them. And so that's an, uh, an act of faith on my part of God, I, I pray that you would be at work mm -hmm. in this student's life, yeah. um, that you would continue to work and, and that you would uh, help me as I fail and fumble about and try to teach well, um, that your spirit would be the one that actually is at work somehow in the things that I say and don't say so that these young people somehow come out on the far side of this college experience, knowing Jesus more than they did before, yeah. even after having gone through potentially some really difficult seasons of asking questions and struggling with doubts and those types of things that they would come out on the other side with a what Paul Ricoeur calls a second naivete, like the sense mm -hmm. of a childlike faith or wonder, but only having gone mm -hmm. through the hard stuff of wrestling with the questions and the and deconstructing it uh, in order to understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely resonate with this idea that it is a scary job to be in, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, folks, you know, these students' hearts and minds and souls are in, in some ways being influenced by what we're saying or not mm -hmm. saying, right? And so it's something that I definitely pray very regularly about, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of, Lord, be working in my students' minds and hearts and um, be moving in, moving them in the ways that will be persuasive to them, mm -hmm. right? Because I think in, the, in this postmodern moment, we can't expect that one particular approach right. is going to really address their questions, their doubts, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it has to be something that is a move of God's spirit in them to, to show them the truth on their own in that sense, right? But I do want to come alongside them and and encourage them. Like I tell the students at the beginning of the year, you know, come to office hours with your professors if you're wrestling with certain questions that, mm -hmm. you know, that are not brought up in class or maybe only touched on in class. Come talk to us, have coffee with us, that kind of thing. Because I think that the thing that I want to dispel with the students is that their doubt or their question or their deconstruction of the faith is something that only they have ever thought of, Yeah. Mm. right? But that question is probably something that like people have written volumes and volumes on, thought about for centuries, if not millennia. Yeah. And I wanna say, look, if you have this question, at least talk to us because we may be able to point you to resources, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of other authors who have worked on this, maybe our own experiences with regard to like um, things that we've gone through in terms of how do we how did we resolve that question for ourselves? Whereas I think oftentimes students, um, uh, you know, I've had students who come up to me and said, you know, when, when I was in high school, I had these particular questions. I went to talk to my parents about it. I went to talk to my youth pastor and my pastor about them, and they had no answers. They didn't even know how to even begin answering these questions. And I think the impression that these students get when they get to college is, well, then no Christians have thought about this, so therefore Christians are stupid, and so therefore mm -hmm. I should throw out the faith. Mm. Whereas I want them to know that, look, even if your pastor at home had no idea how to address this question, there are scholars who have probably spent their entire lives addressing this question. And it's just that you're just not aware of them. It's just not disseminated in kind of the public imagination. Whereas, like, you know, this might be a, a, an active question of academic debate, right, within theology, within philosophy. Um, and so that's the kind of 
um, impression that my, I want to give to the students, that they're not alone in this, right, in whatever thing that they're wrestling with. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that I can point them to resources or, or provide myself as a resource um, with regard to that question. Um, so Yeah, I think, too, with postmodernism in its best form has a sense of an epistemological humility, yes. mm -hmm. a sense of curiosity about the world and a, a willingness to ask questions and to, to foster that kind of humility and curiosity in students to say it's yeah let's ask this let's go down that rabbit trail let's try and figure out um this let's look at all these different texts and even maybe some competing ideas um, that really smart people have come to different conclusions about this but that doesn't mean we just have to abandon the faith entirely uh or have some sort of um anti-intellectual like well if i just don't ask any more questions then i then i can follow jesus um but that to be a christian and a scholar uh, to be a thoughtful Christian mm -hmm. uh, is a is not just a possibility, but even maybe part of our discipleship process. Yeah, yeah, I think that idea of humility and wonder is really important because thinking back to the like new atheist ditch that you described, right? There's not a lot of humility there, right? <laughs> no. There's like. You know, I mean, it's kind of a stereotype, but, you know, like the 19 year old who sits down and like reads, you know, the first three chapters of Genesis and is like, this doesn't make any sense. This is garbage, you know. So um, something that that I'll tell my students as well. In fact, just the other day we were reading um, a biblical text at the end of seminar. One of my students said, oh, you know, Dr. Favali, don't sometimes you just get frustrated by like how many questions you leave with when you read the Bible. And I was like, actually, I'm encouraged by that because. How disappointing would it be if, you know, you like an, you know, an 18 year old sit down and read this incredibly complex sacred text and you leave feeling like, well, uh, that's it. done and dusted. <laughs> I guess I, you know, I figured that one out. Right. Mm -hmm. But instead, there's this sense of like depth and richness if there's a sense of humility and wonder. Right. Rather than suspicion, because suspicion doesn't seem humble in a way like there seems suspicion rather almost seems like there's a condescension, like mm -hmm. prove it to me. I'm not sure, you know, I'm dubious rather than, oh, wow, I don't know. I don't understand. And I'm curious. I'm, I want to know. So those seem like different, different kind of dispositions um, that, that we can cultivate in our students, I guess, hopefully. Um, it's just so, it's so fun and tempting and easy to be cynical, you know, at a very young age. And I think that's another feature of post-modernity, right? Is cynicism. Mm -hmm. Um and there's, I, I've heard what I little I know about metamodernism, there's almost this emphasis on sincerity. Like there's this new sincerity kind of mm -hmm. about it, uh, which there's something appealing, appealing about that too. Yeah. It's coming out on the other side of, yeah, if you were so certain in modernity mm -hmm. and then become cynical about that and just be like, ah, and sarcastic <laughs> and uh, critical of that. But then to come out in that kind of, whatever that is, metamodernism, post-postmodernism with a sense of. Uh, awe and wonder. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually think of it like, so when you're in middle school, awkward, weird, not caring about anything. And then you get really cool in high school and you, you're very aware of your own, you know, your self image and things like that. But then college students seem to almost revert back to that middle school <laughs> yes. sense where they're just totally willing to do weird and I goofy know. things. I love and, it. Um, and that seems to be that kind of humility that's mm -hmm. even self-effacing. And going, you know, I don't have things all all the way figured out, uh, but I also know that I can't abandon that journey of trying to understand this world and understand the God who created this world mm -hmm. um, and have a humility and a, yeah, humility, curiosity and wonder mm -hmm. as being key elements to all that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, look at pre-modern Christianity, 
I mean, it's some in, in the honors program, right? We read through texts um, from the ancient world down to the present. And so it's, it's interesting to read some of these pre-modern Christian authors and how much of an emphasis they place on mystery, right? I'm thinking of like pseudo-Dionysus, especially um, um, almost like there's this, like the deeper you go with God, the more you have to kind of let go of your categories and names in a way of there's this like apophatic or negative kind of theology that there's this unknowing that has to happen as well. Um, and, but is there a difference between that and say postmodernism, right? Like what's the difference between more of a mystical kind of apophatic theology like you might see in some of the Christian mystics or pseudo-Dionysus or um, Master Eckhart or, you know, some of those medieval mystics. And then the the kind of postmodern, I guess, sensibility, which is um, we can't, you know, we can't really know anything anyway. So what's the what's the difference There's between those two ways of, of approaching God, I guess? I actually think, I mean... I don't think there is a significant difference in that many of the philosophers I think of from a continental philosophy and postmodern and postmodern theology. So John Caputo, um, Richard Kearney, um, Catherine Keller are people who are drawing on that apophatic tradition and then making those connections with like Derrida and Levinas. And so there's this apophatic theology and these postmodern thinkers and somehow they're finding a congruence there put these people in dialogue and maybe it can help make sense of one and the other. Um, so, but I also think that you're onto something that there's, there's gotta be some sort of distinction that's right. going on there. I, Cause I would not call, um, yeah, Meister Eckert, Eckert, Meister Eckert, uh, a postmodernist, right? right? <laughs> um, but there's something insightful there that could be drawn into or find congruence with postmodern mm -hmm. ways of thinking. I do think that, you know, uh, I'm not a huge fan of uh, apophatic theology myself, but I do think that uh, in the tradition, apophatic theology was always paired with cataphatic theology in the sense that, like, it's not just apophatic, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, it's like, it's not just rejection of all these names and predicates of God, but that it's still links somehow with mm -hmm. the self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. right? Because you have Neoplatonic apophatic theology right. as well, and but that's not a Christian you know what I mean? Like that's not mm -hmm. a, so. There's some. There has to be something Christian about an apophatic theology. That's a Christian apophatic theology. So mm -hmm. I don't quite understand that because I myself am not super sympathetic to it. But <laughs> but but I think within the tradition, folks who do like Caputo and various other people who mm -hmm. embrace that, they have to have some way of differentiating their version of it from mm -hmm. a non-Christian version of it, right? Um. So I, I'm not sure what that is. I'm the wrong person to ask about that. Yeah. Um, but I do think that with regard to coming back to the connection with postmodernism, I think that it's that uh, uh, apophatic theology would be compatible with the kind of modern, I'm sorry, moderate postmodernism that we talked right. about earlier. But I don't think it's compatible with the kind of uh, kind of more extreme versions of postmodernism in which there, there is no truth. Right. right. So for them. Uh, or truth is just simply your belief and that has nothing to do with reality. Because for for that kind of postmodernist, they would say, well, even the apophatic claim is just is just a belief. It has nothing to do with what right. reality is, right? Like even the claim that there is a God, you know, without any predicates that we can apply to God, like 
that claim itself is just a belief. It's not anything beyond, over and above that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, it's interesting because like Alvin Plantinga, a Christian philosopher, he mm-hmm. he calls this kind of more radical postmodernism um, creative anti-realism, right? It yeah. just rejects this connection yes. with reality, but then you kind of construct your own beliefs that have no connection to reality and you just believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a kind of, um, uh, I mean, I've even seen like entire documentary uh, movies based on this kind of thing in which it's like you create reality so yeah. that um, uh, I remember this one um, movie. can't remember the exact title. Uh, I don't know if you guys seen this. What the bleep, bleep do, do we, we know? know? Oh, yes. yes right? yeah. uh, have you seen this one? I have seen this. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's back yes. to the 90s. I guess it's this age. Is, uh, the no, no, no. Has... It was like early 2000s. I remember. Yeah. Because I, I watched it in Newburgh, right? Oh, okay, okay. So I wouldn't have been in Newburgh in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. So so I, I just remember this because there was this claim made in it. Something, I, and it's been so, so many years. I can't remember. It. Mm-hmm. So apologies if I'm butchering it. But it was this claim that something like, um, when the uh, uh, Native Americans saw the ships of Columbus coming to uh, America, they could not even see them because they did not have a category of oh, yeah, a ship or something that. like that. And I was just like, wow, that is that is a radical claim. Yeah. Because yeah. It's, it's basically saying that, you know, our our ideas just construct reality, right? And, yeah. and so, I mean, for that kind of postmodernism, I can't see how that's compatible with any kind of theology, whether it be mm-hmm. apophatic theology or cataphatic, because you're just saying we, we as individuals or as subcultures or cultures are creating reality. Right. There's no truth above and beyond that. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see how theology can really work in that kind of world. I think one I think one difference, at least when I think about my own postmodern Christian phase, which I, I went through after college for about a decade. So um I think one difference between that and more mystical theology is that even even a an apophatic mystical theologian, say like Pseudo-Dionysus, he believes that God exists and is revealing himself, yeah. right? So um, even though the fullness of God is beyond human comprehension and our language can't fully capture who or what God is, because it, it transcends our language, it transcends our understanding. So there's there's a sense in which there's a there's a chasm, and our own language can only take us so far. But yet, nonetheless, that's why God almost has to come down to us and reveal Himself, right? But that seemed when I was a postmodern Christian, I I had this view of like, okay, I think God exists, like there's some kind of ultimate reality out there, but all of our understandings of that reality are. All we have are human constructs, human categories, human stories, human language. Um, and, you know, maybe some of those metaphors are better than others. I think the Christian metaphor is more compelling than, you know, other metaphors. And so, you know, that's why I kind of choose this one. But now when I look back at that, I I see that my, my concept of God was a God who does not speak to us. Yes. Like it was not this self-disclosing God. It was just, there was this mystery, but... God wasn't coming down and closing that mystery in order to speak to us. So I think when I was, when I was postmodern, I think I, clo- I closed myself off from the idea of divine revelation. Mm. Um, and so I wonder if, I mean, for so many of our students and for Protestant Christians, scripture is, is kind of the ground of, mm-hmm. of divine revelation. And so how does scripture look in our postmodern era, I guess, like how has postmodernity changed the way people read scripture or approach scripture? How should we be reading scripture, I guess, in a way that 
keeps us out of the ditches that mm -hmm. we don't want to run into. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to go back a little sure. bit um, because this is maybe I can explain a little why, why, why I'm not such a fan of apophatic theology, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. I think that Part of it is that um, this this possibility of divine self-disclosure, mm -hmm. right, in terms of revelation. But I think you, you can go even further back, right, because the idea is that God created us, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that yeah. this is actually, I mean, the, the metaphysics of and the origins of humanity really is kind of at the found, I mean, I guess this is a very non-postmodern thing to say, but that's really at the foundation of a lot of this extreme skepticism of postmodernism, mm -hmm. right, in the sense that like, if in fact Darwin is right, and in mm -hmm. fact if an atheistic Darwinism is correct, then we're just the product of this blind evolutionary right. process. Then yeah. why why should we trust our reason? Right. right. So I think that it's not an accident that the postmodern period comes shortly after Darwin in the eighteen right. hundreds, right? Because it's and that's what we see in Nietzsche as well. When Nietzsche mm -hmm. says, "Look, you know, God is dead," combine that with Darwin. What guarantee? I mean, this is Descartes' hope, right, in the 1600s, that if we can show that God exists, then God will underwrite our reason, right? Mm. It will. He was the one who underwrites our reason, that we can think properly and can get to truth. But if you kind of pull that rug from underneath us as human beings, we're just random collections of molecules bouncing around, then, then deep skepticism is warranted, right? And in, within philosophy, there's a whole range of um, arguments called evolutionary debunking arguments, that basically try to show that if we are the products of evolution this way, we shouldn't trust our own reason for anything, right? Mm -hmm. Or that we shouldn't trust our reason in ethics or we shouldn't trust our reason in religion and so on and so forth. It's very interesting. I mean, I can go on and on. Yeah. But, but, the, but, the, but, but my point here is that um, in a Christian perspective, if God has created us, then our reason has a some degree of reliability, even though it's been tainted with sin. Mm -hmm. But even further, that even our language and our words are ultimately from God. Yeah. And oh, if yeah. that's true, then God created us with a linguistic capacity mm -hmm. that may not fully be able to mm -hmm. embrace who like God is and understand God is in a 100% clearly not, but it would be enough for him enough. to disclose himself in revelation that we have some analogous understanding of who God is. And that's yes. why I I myself as a philosopher and a theologian can't embrace a full apophatic sure. theology because I do believe that God has built into us in that linguistic capacity. Or in mm -hmm. other words, our linguistic capacity is not a purely human creation. Yeah, It's it's molded yeah. by okay. human culture, but ultimately our language is a gift from God. Hmm. And if that's the case, then we can go back and say, oh, then our language does have capability, true capability, to be able to embrace at least part of what God is or who God is, mm -hmm. right? And it kind of gives us the grounding or kind of the receptacle for which revelation can come, right? right? And so when Christ comes and preaches to us, we might not fully understand it, we might not fully grasp it, but with the assistance of his spirit, we're able to at least understand partially. And this is what Paul says, right? Mm -hmm. First Corinthians says, yeah. we yeah. see in part, right? Mm -hmm. Not fully, we see in part though, yeah. right? And so I think that that's where I come from. And whereas like, um, like a Neoplatonic mm -hmm. kind of uh, apophatic theology, there is no kind of uh, divine creator making us in his image in that way. Right. You just have these emanations from the one, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm presupposing a lot of kind of uh, philosophy here, but but this idea that um, it's this kind of involuntary existence of us. And so on a Neoplatonic thing, which is what the view is that's informing Pseudo-Dionysius, yeah. then we shouldn't expect that we're going to have the categories, the proper linguistic categories to 
understand God uh, in any way. Right? Interesting. Okay, so that's okay. a yeah, huge yeah. rabbit hole. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, um, I it's can't super help interesting. It. Um, but, uh, but then I think then if we come to Scripture, to the degree that, especially with regard to what, how, if Scripture is in fact um, reproducing for us what Christ told his disciples, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there is this kind of like the power of that written word mm-hmm. is what mediates in a sense um, not not the only way it mediates, but it's one way in which God's mediation to us of himself, right? Mm-hmm. Of who he is, what he's done, all that kind of thing. So I think that that's, um, that's one way we can think about it. Um, but not in this whole dogmatic thing, because I think it's that tension, right? Like, yes, God has given us a certain capacity for understanding. God has revealed himself in certain ways that we can know in part. But it's not this kind of dogmatic sense. It's like, okay, now I know 100% with 100% certainty of everything with regard to theological truth. That's not something even the Apostle Paul claimed, right? And yeah. so I think that that's, it, mm-hmm. it's in line with that more moderate postmodernism in the sense that like, mm. we have to have a certain kind of epistemic humility, right. but it's not a complete skepticism because God has given us these resources, uh, both built into us as well as in revelation. Hmm. Um, yeah. I think, um, I mean, there's this postmodern hermeneutical tendency to mm-hmm. talk about there's no meaning outside of the text mm-hmm. right. and so the text itself the idea of the death of the author from mm-hmm. Barth and not Karl Barth but Roland yeah, Barth yeah, yes, the other one uh, <laughs> Roland Barth, um, that you know so if, if we apply those types of hermeneutics to scripture and the death of the author meaning the death of God then the meaning of the text is essentially what I want it mm-hmm. to be right and there isn't a sense of truth or infallibility or anything like that that could be applied to that particular text uh, it's just kind of a historical document, um, if that, and I can even be skepticism, mm-hmm. skeptical about right. that if I want to be, um, about who who decided these documents were going to be part of this canonized right. scripture. But if I don't take that extreme, again, that kind of dogmatic skepticism in a postmodern stance, but actually, again, have that epistemological humility to look at the text for what it says for itself, and to recognize that this text, from a hermeneutical perspective, does in, invite interpretation, and mm-hmm. that there could be a wide variety of interpretations uh, that seem to have valid meaning. That there are people who are very intelligent, faithful Christians who have different interpretations of that text uh, that keep coming back to it faithfully. That's, in a way, a quasi-postmodern way of going about this. Mm-hmm. That there's a conflict of interpretations that are happening around this text that it invites us to go back in and to to enter into that text to try and understand it for ourselves, not in an isolated individual sort of way, but in the context of the traditions that we find ourselves in um, and in community with one another. Hmm. So there is, I think, a benefit to that as long as it's not, again, shifting into those dogmatic extremes, uh, whether it's the text is just whatever I want it to be, uh, or that dogmatic sense of the, the Bible says it, I believe it, that does it. Yeah. And I don't even recognize my own hermeneutical biases right. and the experiences that I'm bringing into the text. Mm. And also the possibility that a given biblical text or even non-biblical text can have multiple layers of meaning, yes. right? And I yeah. think that that's something that, um, you know, a lot of students and a lot of people in general don't recognize, that mm-hmm. there might be different layers of meaning. And maybe some of those layers of meaning may only really apply to certain communities at certain times. And so there's there's even this kind of, I don't want to say relativism, but there's this kind of contextualization yes, that, yeah, that can come into play it. because you have different kind of layers of meaning that um, might have different, you know, arenas of application. And I think that that's some, 
that's a much more complex and kind of a whole like polysemic, all that kind of stuff yeah. um, from postmodernism that could be actually very beneficial in terms of not locking us into, okay, there's only one meaning mm-hmm. of this particular text. Whereas even, even within the Bible, like, mm-hmm. you know, we have this multiplicity of meaning where, yeah. you know, these New Testament authors are looking at these Old Testament texts and saying, mm-hmm. actually, yeah, it meant this in that time, but it also had this deeper mm-hmm. meaning. Mm-hmm. Talking about the Christ who would come and maybe mm-hmm. even talking about future, the, the end of the world, the eschaton. I mean, all these things wrapped up into one text, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that allowing for that and, and, and um, there's a certain amount of uncertainty there built into it. But I think scripture itself sees itself in that light. And I think that, mm-hmm. that that licenses us to kind of be a little bit more open in terms of what are the possible interpretations of a particular text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that flattening of scripture mm-hmm. is a modern phenomenon mm-hmm. too, right? Mm-hmm. So that kind of shows how in some there I don't know, I'm just I'm interested here in the echoes between kind of pre-modern Christianity and post-modern Christianity and how there are there are some helpful links there um that can help us maybe understand how to navigate the era we're in, you know, we're just kind of swimming in this postmodern soup whether we like it or not and there are some potentially good things about that that correct maybe um, the excesses of modernism, but then there are also dangers, right? There are also um, pitfalls to it. And I do think the question of authority is a big one um, because I, that, that for me was my change, my changing view of scripture is what I think really sent me off more onto, I guess, a a hard postmodern track um, because I just began to see it as a purely human text with human authors. And so it, yeah, I was, I, I guess I became the authority in a way, like I, I became the interpretive authority and that was just really convenient because then I could kind of make it say what I wanted it to mm. say, which mm-hmm. turned out to be really affirming all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it didn't really ask much of me, yeah. you know, it didn't, it didn't, um, you know, have me, and maybe I'm just a bad reader. I think there are people who are much more humble. Again, this epistemic humility, right. Or approaching the text with reverence, um, was something that I think I, I lost when I, began to no longer see it as a way of God revealing himself, you know. Well, I feel maybe a little bit better about postmodern, oh, you know, good. like I, what am, I've been thinking about our conversation and uh, I've been thinking, I've been calling it in my head, who's afraid of postmodernism, you know, in a way, because I, I do think that sometimes there's a little bit too much of a, a knee-jerk reaction against it. But at the same time, having seen you know, in my own faith journey, the ways in which it can go wrong. Sometimes I, I wonder if I react too strongly against it, right? Um, but but I, th- I think this is where it's like that that image of the pendulum swing is help, very yes. helpful because I think that, yes, there are things in modernism that we should kind of draw back from in terms of like, it was too far in that direction, right? And I think yeah. so we need to come back. But I think the danger is going too far in the opposite direction, right? Yes. And I think that's where I, I really do see that's where these rel- the the extreme postmodernist where the uh, the cheap relativism that's yeah. where, we've already gone there as a culture but I think also at the individual level each of us I feel like are oftentimes having these kind of yes. intellectual pendulum swings that's true so I mean maybe you're trying to overcorrect for any kind of yeah. overreaction against uh, your postmodern phase oh yeah totally I'm, I'm just like wheeling all <laughs> over the road there but um this is probably an impossible question but I'm kind of curious to see what you'd say speaking of the pendulum shifts like where is it going to swing next? Like, where are we going to go from here? Like, what do you think? Where? How do you think this postmodern era is going to unroll in the next? Unroll in the next 
I don't know, 10, 20, 50, whatever, however you want to, what do you think? That's so hard. I know right? it's hard. Yeah, because I couldn't, <laughs> you know, if you'd asked me three years ago, what what would life be like? I know, right? <laughs> so oh much so COVID. Yeah, exactly. Everything has changed. Um, but I do think that whatever modernity and post-modernity and the blurring of those timelines is, it's. I think it's here longer than we probably would anticipate. I keep, hmm. would I'll read texts, older texts, older being the 80s uh, <laughs> and the 90s that will say, you know, we're after post-modernity or it's mm -hmm. done or stuff like that. And then the, and it's then like, oh, it's barely getting started. Yeah, my and friend. then text will come in the 2000s that say similar things and then the mm -hmm. 2010s and now we're in the 2020s and the yeah. same thing of or proclaiming, yeah, the death of postmodernism we're over and done with that. Well, I don't I don't know, like it still seems to be around. Mm -hmm. So um, so I'm not sure what its longevity looks like. Uh, I do think that there's going to be some significant overlaps between how we think about the world and again kind of our audio visual orientation as a culture hmm. so digital media mm -hmm. um this type of thing of our yeah. sources of information and authority mm -hmm. um where we're we're talking on a podcast uh, we're professors talking on a podcast and so like <laughs> hopefully we're we're communicating truth and ideas and stimulating thought mm -hmm. um but we know that there are competing podcasts and yeah. competing youtube videos and all these other things that are vying for our attention um, and so mm -hmm. I think that's that kind of potential disintegration of conversation um, can happen because of social media dynamics. Mm -hmm. But on the more positive side, I think it's also we can hear different perspectives and new voices and new experiences because of mm -hmm. the kind of digital revolution that we're experiencing as well, where I can see what people are going through on the other side of the world and have interactions and engagement with them that gives expands my horizons and my imagination mm -hmm. of understanding. And then particularly how God is at work in the world, hmm. uh, that I can see the way that Christ is at, at work in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, yeah. in Africa, uh, and then down the street yeah. um, in a way that I couldn't have even 50 years ago or something like that. So, so. I'm down the street. You. you are down so the street. So you're yeah. like looking at my house like, oh, God's at work over God's there. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. The Favalis, God is there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's, I think what's going to happen, at least my predictions, whatever it's worth, two cents. Um, I think that we'll have further fragmentation. Mm -hmm. I think because of the fact social media does produce this siloing effect in which you yes. basically it's creating echo chambers for everyone. So I think that, you know, um, it's like very ironic that um, this technology that should be uniting people and uniting the world is just kind of siloing people into these different camps, whether they yeah. be, you know, hard right, hard left, you know, whatever it might be um, different. Uh, I mean, if, even just thinking about like uh, this recent invasion of Russia, mm -hmm. of Ukraine, like, mm -hmm the media environments in, from Ukraine and Russia are completely hermetically right. sealed from each other in some ways. And so wow. um, public perception and thought is just kind of separated in, in a kind of way. And and um, social psychologists and uh, so, uh, social philosophers have, have noted that when this happens, it leads to greater and greater polarization, uh. right? So that the more and more extreme elements tend to get more and more airplay in these silos. And as a result, they start drifting away from each other. Yeah. Um, so I do think that um, there's going to be this increasing fragmentation in society. Mm -hmm. um, but that will also be happening because people are seeing that they're going to be probably reacting against that and trying to become swinging back towards the dogmatist 
perspective and mm. having these silos will allow them to do that right so mm. there, there was this book the benedict option right oh, that, yeah that was written it's it's kind of moving in that kind of direction we need to have our own kind of silo um for you know conservative christians or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um and so i think that uh that is the trend i mean that might change in the future but i think that is the trend and it's being accelerated because of this kind of social media kind of silo siloization mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. of the culture so i th- I, th- I do think that i've already we, we talked about earlier how like you had these like subcultures like the postmodern sorry the modernist subculture and the postmodern subculture i think in that way those subcultures subcultures can continue perpetuating themselves so wow. I, I i think I'm, i'm agreeing with joel in the sense that i think postmodernism as a cultural force will have legs that will continue yeah. to go into the future. It's just a matter of whether it will gain or lose market share, I think. Yeah. Well, it's hard to imagine with what you're describing this, I don't know if the tech is it entropy? Is that kind of the <laughs> idea when things kind of go like that or is that the g- greater disorder? That's Yeah, well, I'm kind of like entropy. this this like increasing fragmentation. Mm-hmm. It seems like it would be hard for that to reverse, yes. like to recollect yes, in that way, so it almost seems I don't know, with these other huge shift, it just seems like there was, at least in the West, there was a little bit more of kind of a monoculture dominating. Right. And now it kind of seems like things are just really splitting off. So right. it's hard to imagine that being gathered up again in yeah. a certain way. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, you know, Jesus will save us all. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's our hope. That's the gathering that will have to happen, right? right. That um, that the church can be somehow uh, remain intact amidst all this fragmentation. Lord, hear our prayer. <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, thanks for talking with me about postmodernism. Yeah, this thanks was, for having us on. Yeah, this Thank was great. You so much. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash George Fox Talks. 